Welcome everyone. Nice to see you all filtering in, settling in. Please make yourself comfortable and I'll begin the Dharma sharing in a, in a couple of minutes. There's still a few people making their way to our virtual meditation hall. I've said before, I live uh, not far from Spirit Rock, so basically out in the country, so our internet is not that great out here, but hopefully enough that you can see me and even more importantly, hear me. So let's begin. As we've said, there are, there are great blessings and opportunities here in this online form, but the real challenge is not being able to physically feel your presence. We get such a sense of how the retreat is going when we sit with you uh, in a room, in a hall. But it was great to meet with some of you today in the practice meetings, the first round, and it always makes uh, everything a little more real when we get to hear from you and hear how it's going. And of course, there was the usual range of experiences and also range of where people were from, really all over the country, someone from another country. So great to feel the teachings going out and the practice that's happening in all these different locations. It's almost like you could have a map of the world in these little glowing spots of where people are here practicing metta. So nice to feel. So I wonder how all the rest of you are doing. It's hard, right? Um, the first couple of days of retreat can be challenging as we get used to this very different way of being with the schedule and adjusting in our bodies and adjusting our minds, reorienting to this practice. Um, and it's tiring. I, I know at least one person, because they said it today in the group, but I'm sure she wasn't alone, said, why did I think this was a good idea? She said, luckily that day is over. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling better today, but I know that feeling. It's like this, there's a lot of challenge in taking up this practice. And I think it was John who said, you want me to do what? For how long? Repeat these phrases over and over again. So uh, I know there can be some, some struggle. And I think we've said we're, what we're doing here really is combining three forms of retreat. The online retreat, this digital world, a self-retreat where you're probably practicing pretty much on your own, and a home retreat. You're doing it in your home environment. And again, there's things that are both um, supportive in those three variations, 
but also places where there's real challenge. And it takes some time to navigate that. So I hope you're, you're approaching this retreat with a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness, but also a lot of persistence. We just keep showing up. It was a, someone who said, you know, 98% of life is just showing up. And I think it's the same in Metta. And even though we call this a Metta retreat, it's really an everything retreat, right? Because we're not just feeling Metta. We're feeling tired and hungry and sad and, and happy and uh, fearful and angry and frustrated. It's, it's all here. Our whole life as a complex human being is here on this retreat. And we're actively turning towards that landscape of the heart, all these different qualities of the heart, the emotional life. And so it can be rich and rocky as we, you know, don't put that aside, something that gets in the way, but actually this is what we want to pay attention to. How's the heart right now? How's the mind? How's the body? And seeing this potential through intentional training of developing these beautiful qualities of the heart in the vocabulary that we're using on this retreat, the Brahma Viharas of friendliness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so we're doing something really radical here because we're paying attention, but paying attention with this framework of cultivation of how can we actually get a clearer sense of, open to, invite, embody these beautiful qualities of the heart and mind instead of our usual kind of fracturedness. Our lives tend to be busy with so many things bombarding us, our projects, our work obligations, the to-do list, the, the um, things that we know we need to take care of, the agendas and deadlines, the latest COVID updates, and what am I meant to be doing now? What can I do and can't I do? And how many people are okay? And do mask here or not here? It, it's stressful, stressful and confusing. So we're reorienting here, all of that busyness and fracturing and figuring out. It's very simple. It's not easy, but it's very simple. How do I be more kind? How do I orient around this intention, the kindness towards myself, towards others, my inner experience, my outer experience, my body, my heart, my mind, in this eventually very inclusive way? I'm, I'm, I make a point of collecting uh, cartoons on meditation and there's more and more of them as it becomes, I, can, I sometimes say mainstream and people say, Sally, you're not in the mainstream. This is not yet mainstream, but it's definitely, you know, more and more people interested practicing. And as we've seen in the online world, really some expansion in this one cartoon cartoonist I've noted, David Cypress, who kept, doing more and more ones on uh, meditation. And he was actually pretty clued in to meditation and its foibles and it's the way people can misunderstand or misuse meditation. So I looked him up and he actually is practicing meditation to help him with his stress, his anxiety, and he's finding it beneficial. But 
One I saw recently, uh, a typical setting of a class with a group of people on cushions in a circle and a teacher up front. And the teacher is saying this. And now I want you to send out peaceful, loving thoughts to all sentient beings on the planet who have exactly the same political, economic and religious beliefs that you do. So this is not what we're saying, right? We're not wanting to limit and confine. You know, you have to agree with me, be the same as me. We're expanding and seeing what's really possible with this capacity of the heart. We have a sense of it, but really to keep leaning in to expanding all directions. And we'll be exploring this in the terrain of the retreat. But beginning here with the self, with me, can I actually send love, care and kindness towards myself? It's often the most challenging to send love to ourselves, to feel that we are lovable that others might love us and accept us. So there's two sides to that. I love this poem by Hafez, the Sufi poet. He says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. Still, though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? All of us, this pull, this yearning to connect, yet we're so afraid we'll be misunderstood, won't be cared for, won't be safe, won't be loved. As we recognize that in ourselves, we see and know it in others. And the heart just becomes a little more tender, a little more accepting, a little more kind. And we start to, to know for ourselves, if we didn't already, that that basic goodness and kindness is, is right here. It's not something foreign that we have to import in. It's right here. But the really good news is we can cultivate and strengthen it. And this is the training that we do here in Metta. We can access this feeling and learn how to polish it and shine it and knead it, like kneading dough that makes us beautiful. Maybe you've gotten into sourdough bread making. I hear it's a rage. I, I never did myself, but I would love someone. To, no, I shouldn't say that. You never know what might happen. Love. That, it, that people have really connected with these simple, simple things. This is what we're doing with our heart. We're needing it so that its beautiful qualities can manifest. One of the um, news sites, you could say, websites I've gotten connected with over this time of, of social isolation and challenge and loss and grief, I, I really love it. Of course, we've been dealing with the coronavirus been the virus that's, that's been uh, affecting so many people. So these people set up a website called Coronavirus. Karuna is this Pali or Sanskrit word that means compassion. And so they just took it upon themselves to collect all of the stories of compassion and kindness and generosity and joy and love 
that are out there because they're out there. We just don't read them in the everyday newspapers, right? We hear all the death toll, the statistics and the hospitalizations and the loss, the the wars and the injustice and the murders. So it's just great to go to this website, coronavirus.org and get some uplifting news. So this is one that I read just the other day. And they often link to other stories. They're just collecting these stories. So this is from the Greater Good magazine, also a good resource. When parents take their children to a pediatrician for a wellness check, they expect to get reports on their children's healthy development, if they're growing properly, eating and sleeping well, or in need of vaccines. They probably don't expect to get a prescription for kindness. But at Senders Pediatrics, a private practice in Cleveland, Ohio, and one of Greater Good Science Center's 16 parenting initiative grantees, this is exactly what parents are getting. The clinic's parent education coordinator, Joan Morgenstern, has developed a a program to produce events, lessons, and tools promoting kindness. Based on evidence that practicing kindness and purpose benefits children, the program helps kids care for others and flourish themselves. While the program is in its infancy, it's a model that is popular with parents and kids and has helped the staff at Senders Pediatrics, particularly during this difficult time of COVID. Shelley Senders, the clinic's founding pediatrician, hopes their focus on kindness and developing the whole child is a model that can be replicated more widely. My goal in all of this is to get the American Academy of Pediatrics to endorse the concept of teaching kindness in every pediatric practice, he says. There are many reasons to encourage kids to be kind. For one, it helps build positive relationships, which are an important part, important for developmental growth and success in life. More broadly, kindness is a value from a young age which can have positive effects later in life. Oh, sorry, kindness is a moral virtue that can lead to more trusting, cooperative societies. And picking up kindness as a value from a young age can have positive effects later in life. When kids are kind, they are happier and less likely to have social or behavioral problems. Kids who do nice things for others may have a greater sense of agency and purpose too, meaning they see that their actions can have a positive impact in the world and feel more capable of changing things for the better. So I wish I had been in that program when I was a child and had discovered the value of kindness, but here we are, this is our program for developing kindness and realizing the benefits for ourselves. There is a greater sense of well-being, greater sense of agency, of confidence, resilience, these words we've been using. So this is the training that we're in. We're training to be more kind and it, it works. It does work. So as we've said, this capacity for metta is naturally there, but for many of us or at times, it can be obstructed. 
we've used this language before, I want to talk about it more tonight, of metta as a purification practice. What happens is, as we say these praises that are about well-wishing for ourselves and for others, whatever might be an obstacle or a limitation that we feel in manifesting what we're wishing for, that will come up for us. It's almost inevitable. The practice is almost designed to bring up these obstructions, our feelings of wanting and not wanting, of anger or aversion, old wounds and regrets and fears and grief. As we say, may I be happy, this is what will naturally come up. Any unfinished business in the heart from perhaps recent times or long ago history, this is what comes up for us. And though it can be painful when these difficult emotions arise, these old memories, hurts and harms arise, this is actually where the purification happens. This is actually the metta practice working. So if you find that happening, don't say to yourself or feel that, oh, I'm not doing it right or it's not working. It is working. As they say, not that I'm any kind of expert, but if you want to purify gold, you have to thrust it into a fire, right? And turn it around so the impurities get burnt away. It's a bit like that with our hearts. We can feel like we're in a fire, a fire of these difficult emotions. But instead of being an obstacle or something we just have to get through or or tamp down, we turn our attention there. This is actually the doorway for us, learning how to work skillfully and compassionately and kindly with these difficult emotions is actually the practice working for us. So for each of the Brahma Viharas, and we'll probably talk about the others in later talks, and each of them have what is called a near and a far enemy. And again, in uh, skillful teachings from the hundreds or thousands of years these practices are being taught, these are, can be really helpful to understand. So in metta, the near enemy is desire or attached or conditional love, love with limitations. The far enemy is aversion, ill will, the opposite of goodwill. Now, the first one, desire or attached love, they're known, these, these qualities are known as near enemies because we, they can confuse us, they can masquerade, they're close, they're close or similar to the quality that we're trying to cultivate, but there's some kind of distortion of it. So for metta, the near enemy is all of the forms of attached or conditional love. So it's attachment when our love is flavored by grasping, by holding on, or it's conditional. I'll love you if you love me, or if you'll stay the way I want you to be, you know, the way we're used to in this relationship. Don't rock the boat kind of thing. If you can fulfill these needs for me, it can be the selfish kind of love. I'll love you, but it's got to feed me. I want this. I need this. This serves me. This relationship is about my needs. Or this few 
select group of people. They're my beloveds and everyone else is outside that. And then, of course, I've talked about this word love being so loaded for many people because we associate it with romantic love or the love, passionate love, lust even. You know, it's a source of so many romantic songs and poems. You know, I need you. I want you. I'll die if I don't have, you know, I must possess you. And there's that kind of very um, limiting love, even with its words of, of wanting. Because metta in its purest form is the opposite of all of those. It's unbounded. It's not limited by time and space. It's unconditional. It accepts the other and ourselves just as they are, just as they are without change, without limitation. And it's universal. True metta can expand in the vastest of ways to include all beings, not just those we know or hold dear. So we navigate this terrain of when the heart contracts down into what we're calling the near enemy of metta. And we can know that because there literally often is a contraction, a contraction of the heart that we can almost feel physically. Oh no, what about? And if they do or don't, or I do or don't, will I be loved? Will they love me? Can I love them? If, if unless these certain conditions are met. Anytime we're wanting to control the other person, make their choices for them, you know, we know better than they do. Again, I'm a collector of cartoons, and some of you might know um, this series by Matt Groening called Life, <clears throat> Life in Hell, where they're the, I don't know if you can see it. I should have done a screen share. There are these two guys who are kind of identical. I forget their names, Akbar and some. They never say, they don't often say their names. So one is talking to the other, and he's saying, all I want is a committed relationship, which of course means you must put me ahead of all others. You must do things for me. You must think only of me. You must give me neck rubs, back rubs, and foot rubs. You must agree with me on every subject. You must do what I want to do. You much must watch movies I want to watch. You must be unhappy when I'm unhappy. You must pick me up at the airport. You must meet me at the gate, not down at passenger pickup. You must let me drive. You must let me hold the remote control. You must laugh at all my jokes. And then he stops and says, well, and the other fellow says, I've just remembered I'm taking a sudden trip to Iceland starting right now. Bye. And the first guy goes, I don't understand. How can we have a committed relationship? when he forgot to leave his forwarding address. So little extreme, of course, but we know that sense of being in relationship where it's conditional. This is not metta. So we want to explore this terrain to see what is the capacity of this heart. How much can it open? How much can it accept? Not that we then become wishy-washy or let other people um, take advantage of us. Not at all. 
we have a clear sense is, of what is for our own well-being and what's healthy in a relationship. So we explore. We do that by noticing when any of this kind of conditionality might be happening. So we are aware of it. This is where we use our mindfulness practice. If we sense this, the thought streams of anything along that level or the contracting in the body, the fear around the relationship, we use our mindfulness. I love the teachings that one of my teachers, Ajahn Samedo, um, a monastic, now lives in England. He just says, whatever the issue you're working with, you need to know it. So we say with attachment, you need to know attachment, what that's like to know non-attachment. So we don't run away from when we notice the attachment is there or the fear or the grasping. We want to know it not get caught or entangled in it, but know it so we can know its opposite, non-attachment. So there's a whole exploration there. And someone asked a question about this this morning. I mean, we have to recognize that with some relationships, there will be attachment. In our romantic relationships, in the relationship between a parent and a child, there will be attachment. But we want to recognize the ways that attachment might limit our capacity or certainly the other person's capacity to be truly themselves. And to see the attachment as it is, not an inherent part of that relationship, but something that's being learned and conditioned, and that at times may actually hinder the possibility of real love, real metta in that relationship. So we work skillfully and very tenderly with that experience of attached love. Again, not to say we need to throw it out. We're a good meta practitioner. We wouldn't feel it. We know we may and we will feel attachment. But when it limits our capacity to truly love, when it limits the other person, um, we start to work with that tendency of mind and to see it not as something that's inevitable in the practice and it, that it can actually be unskillful. So there's a lot more to say about that, but um, I want to continue uh, in this exploration of the difficulties that we might have in our practice. So in metta practice, it can, uh, in this near enemy, even outside of the context of metta, that we can have what's called the hindrance of sensual desire, where we're just really wanting things to be different or really wanting to get some particular sensual experience. And it's interesting in our practice at home, things are a lot more accessible than they are when we're on a retreat in our simple dorm room with the food that's offered and all we brought with us uh, in our suitcase. So we start to look at this force of desire and see how strong it can be to go check out the contents of the fridge where you probably know unless you put something else in there, it's the same as it was an hour ago or the desire for a cup of tea or some something that will help us escape from whatever's difficult in the moment. The pull of social media. I mean, they've really done a lot of um exploring where they see it's addictive. 
know, these bells and whistles and chimes and likes and comments. Um, and to see as we hopefully you have put aside your um, non-necessary use of these kinds of uh, devices, how much of a pull there can be to check, to, to be in touch, to, to know what's happening. Feel that force of desire. One of the powers and the beauty of retreat time is we get to step out of that way of usually engaging and see the force of desire separate from the object. Again, this is where our mindfulness practice is so helpful. We're usually so lured into the object, we don't turn back and look and see, oh, it's just desire operating, finding different places to land. What would it be like not to be pulled by that all the time, but to actually rest back and find a deeper source of contentment? This wanting mind doesn't allow us to settle. Temple talked beautifully this morning about equanimity and how the softening of our attachments and our preferences actually supports us seeing or being with things as they are and how much more satisfying that is, how calming, how restful that is, as opposed to being pushed and pulled constantly by the force of ever-changing desire objects, which don't give us lasting happiness. And metta practice, our whole, all of the practice of dharma, can open us to a kind of happiness or well-being that's much deeper than that very ephemeral pull of the fulfilling of the latest sensual desire. Now, the opposite of that wanted, that, oh, sorry, I should say the near enemy. So the, the near enemy is the attached, the conditional love, and then all, uh, you know, the ways in which we have desires and preferences. The far enemy of metta is ill will. Metta is goodwill. The far enemy is ill will or aversion could go as strong as, as hatred or anger. Um, it's interesting that the, the uh, near enemy is always much more seductive. It's actually much harder to recognize because we're familiar with it. It's, it's been a, a way we're used to relating to ourselves and to others. The far enemy comes in with a much bigger uh, agenda, right? I don't want, I don't want it to be like this. I don't want this aspect of my experience. I don't like that other person or I don't like the way they are in the world. So we feel it much more energetically. Again, it can be really painful when we're in the throes of that kind of aversion and all of its variations of irritation and frustration and um, resentment. These are all aspects of the far enemy of metta. And as I said, part of the power of metta is bringing up these, these places in us where we have this tendency. Could be something that's current, that's active for us right now, or as I said, from long old memories, wounds from, from years ago. People often go through on retreat a kind of life review where actions that were hurtful or harmful that you, you did or that others did to you 
they come up and we learn that we can hold them with metta and kindness. And this is where the purification happens. And as we go through different categories of beings, we've started with where we say it's easy. Um, as it gets more complicated, these strong emotions can also come up of, of frustration or resentment or a will. Again, this is the practice working, learning how to work skillfully with it. We start where it's easy to give us some sense of what the meta feeling is like, and then gradually develop this confidence or trust or resilience as it gets more difficult. And so again, this is the purification happening. It's like the COVID vaccine. If you've been able to be vaccinated, if you get have some symptoms, if you actually feel quite bad, especially with the second shot, that means it's working. That means you've got a good immune system that's actually working with the virus. So we start to lean in, open to, not push away these difficult parts of our experience. For many of us, a big way this near far enemy can manifest is aversion towards ourselves. Self-judgment, self-criticism, self-deprecation, a sense of deficiency, of not good enoughness. Being willing to work with these patterns and habits of mind <clears throat> is one of the, I would say, most powerful ways metta can really support us. So, for so many people, myself included, this tendency is so strong and actually diminishes our capacity to continue to grow and open because we're always <clears throat> second guessing or denying or diminishing our capacity. You can even have the thought, you know, who am I to think that I can feel metta? Who am I to feel that kind of love? I, you know, I'm not worthy. It's not possible for me in my sense of diminishment. And so again, the willingness toward to turn towards whatever way it might be manifesting for you. And it happens in different levels, different intensity, you know, just saying the phrase, may I be happy? And the immediate thought comes, I'm not happy. I'm grumpy or I'm sad or I'm, I'm not okay, you know? And so all of those resultant feelings can come. John was talking this morning about this phrase, may I be safe and not feeling safe. Many of us can relate to that. But can we come back to this is still our wish, our wish for ourselves, our wish for someone else. Come back to the intention towards kindness. The habit of judging, though, is so strong, a pervasive attitude of seeing the sense of comparing whether others are different, worse than, better than, or I'm worse than or better than. Even the same as the Buddha called a form of comparing, we start to tune into how that habit often begins as a protection. So we have a sense of separation, a barrier, we retreat behind or into our judging mind. But that movement itself is one of pain, one of suffering. And the more we can open to that realization 
and start to hold ourselves and others with tenderness, that, be, that tendency, that habit can begin to be broken down. We start to see it for what it is, just a habit, just a repetition of words or beliefs in the mind and the heart. You know, I'm, I'm too clumsy or I'm too fearful or I'm too slow or I'm too impatient or I'm too angry. These are just beliefs that we have taken in. They do not tell us the truth about ourselves. And metta begins to show that to us. I remember so clearly on my first, my first metta retreat was a six-week metta retreat. And I'd never really practiced it intensively before. And believe me, I had the thought many times that I mentioned at the beginning, why did I think this was a good idea? I could say a lot about that. I was, instead of being anti-matter, I was anti-meta from a long time, it seemed soppy. I felt like I'd be living in a Hallmark card of you know rainbows and unicorns. I couldn't see the use or the possibility of meta. After a while, I realized all my objections were actually the reason I needed to do Metta. So I set out. I did. I went to Massachusetts to IMS, Insight Meditation Society, for six weeks. And it was really difficult. Both the practice, the saying of the phrases over and over again, the purification that I've talked about, the, 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 the lack of belief in my capacity to be lovable, to love. And I remember going up, Joseph Goldstein was my teacher, and just saying something like, you know, it's going okay. It's, it's not great. I'm kind of friendly, but I'm not loving, you know, and it's, there's this little flicker of meta sometimes, but it's not very big. And maybe I should change my benefactor. And I remember, you know, my memory is Joseph saying, yeah, why don't you try that? Change your benefactor. That might work. I'm sure he didn't say anything like that, but that's what I remembered. So I left the interview and trudged down the steps at IMS, if you know it, you'll know where, and headed down to the garden to my walking meditation path, replaying that interaction in my mind, where it came to be Joseph kind of rolling his eyes and saying, yeah, please, why don't you try something else? Because this is obviously not working. So go try something else. Um, and all of my thoughts of hopelessness and fear and, and uh, frustration and self-negation were just so loud. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to be out of there. I remember looking at the school bus going by and, you know, could I flag down the school bus, the planes going overhead? But there was no escape. I was in Massachusetts. I had no car, no ticket home. My house was sublet. I just had to stay there. And I thought, this is a really familiar state, this kind of abyss, you know, we can drop into of, of self-hatred, hopelessness, helplessness. And it was very familiar, but I had this moment of grace where I realized that it was very familiar, but eventually it changed. It was impermanent. It might be hours or days or weeks, but I would, hopefully, I, I had some sense of confidence that I would come out of this state of woe. And I hope, what would help me get from there to out of it without having to wallow 
for however long, you know, we can be very happy wallowing, right? Even though it's so painful, it's so familiar, we kind of wrap ourselves up in that blanket of judgment and criticism. I said, what would it take to get from here to there without having to go all the way down? I was kind of on the edge looking down. And this thought came, I'd have to accept myself that this is what my metta practice looked like. After these weeks, it was a couple of weeks into the retreat, I think, by then. This is the best I could do. And if that wasn't okay, I was going to suffer. So it had to be okay. And it wasn't like, you know, the rainbows and unicorns then all frolicked around and everything was sunny and, and wonderful. But I was able to continue one step at a time, one phrase at a time. And this little flicker or flame of metta at times became quite deep and powerful. And it was a really transformative experience of trust and confidence that I don't have to believe the stories of how hopeless and helpless I am, that it's possible to actually grow and learn. And so I often share with uh, people when I'm teaching this phrase, may I love and accept myself just as I am. It's just such a powerful phrase. Not when, when I'm a better person or after the 10 point improvement program or after I'm, you know, full of meta, just right now in the imperfection, in, in the, with the sadness and the loneliness. And from that, the, the deepening of metta can come. Because there's a training here. And even science is now proving they're able to do MRIs and track people, that this training of the metta, of the mindfulness practice, really does. The, the brain is much more plastic, much more changeable than was previously thought. And with repeated uh intention and repetition, we can create new neural pathways. Well, that's what we're doing here. I, I, I don't like using this word, but it is a kind of brainwashing. We're shifting, we're, we're, we're swapping our usual messages of not okay and what's wrong and where's the problem to things are okay, you are okay, it is okay. Let's be with this as it is. And it's profound, it's profound. So using mindfulness to bring our awareness to these strong emotions when they arise, to open to them with kindness and compassion. Um, if it really gets overwhelming, so, well, I should say, start with by meet, can we meet it with metta? Can we just include these strong emotions in our metta practice? Maybe even leave them in the background and keep uh, the intention of whatever practice we were doing. If that doesn't work, we turn to the experience with metta. Can we hold it with metta or with compassion? We'll teach compassion, I think, tomorrow. And it's such a helpful, wise response to when we're struggling. If we really get lost, it's sometimes skillful to drop the metta phrases and practice and open to the experience with mindfulness. Oh, this is sadness or judgment or fear or grief and use our practice to actually open to with, with kindness and with equanimity, this is what's happening. Not getting lost in the story, giving energy to the story, to the memories, but this direct experience, 
of this is what this emotion feels like in the body, this pulsing or pressure or, or um, vibration. Or sometimes we go to something really neutral, like uh, if you're able to look out a window or sounds, just to give yourself a break. So that we have a, a modulated response to these experiences. As well as these near and far enemies of metta, um, there are, you know, the classic hindrances. If you've been on any retreat, we always talk about them because they, they hinder us from being fully present with, with clarity and kindness. And in this retreat, even though it's online, even though it's on Metta, we'll probably experience them. Sleepiness, dullness, fatigue. As I said, it, it's hard gearing up and giving the energy and the, putting the effort into this practice, showing up for all these sittings and these teachings. So the body will become tired, the mind and heart will become tired. One of the things we learn is what's skillful taking care of that. You know, take a nap. It's totally okay. I, I call it preemptive napping. It's better to take a nap and clearly rest the body than to spend a lot of time in the nods of where you're just kind of in a fog. Um, but we want to recognize when sleepiness is there. It, it is a hindrance to being alert and practicing the metta. So the simple things that you might think of to, to bring in some fresh air, to not dress too warmly, to splash the face with water, to get up and move around, to do some movement meditation, to take some deeper breaths. These can, can all be helpful in working with sleepiness, but just know it's very common the first days of a retreat. And then the opposite energy is restlessness. And it's interesting how you know, sleepiness uh, and restlessness seem very opposite, but they can kind of come uh, in two steps, right? You know, we can be sleepy and then all of a sudden get agitated and be full of restlessness, a restlessness of mind with the, the, the thoughts and the memories, the pr projects and the planning are just endlessly spinning on. We can't expect that to stop just because we've decided to go on retreat. We have spent years putting energy into that spinning in the mind. Um, and there's, you know, we need our, our clear creative mind to, to make our way in the world. But we want to recognize when it is just spinning like a hamster on a wheel and not going anywhere. Can we recognize that, feel the energy of that? Again, not getting pulled into the content of the thought, the plan, the memory, the, the fantasy, but come back to the felt sense Use your breath to reorient and reground. Come back into a sense of the body sitting. And again, the, the beauty of this form of retreat, you can get up, stand up. You're not disturbing anyone. Go for a bit of a walk back and forth until you find you, you're ready to sit back down again. We'll all go through these cycles of practice, cycles where we're calm and then maybe veer into the sleepiness. We bring more energy. We get a little out of balance with restlessness. We're never, you know, Temple used the great example of the tightrope. You can't, he talked about narrowing the focus down and trying to balance. We want to spread out. But we also can't be rigid. That doesn't help the balance. We've got to flow and recognize when these different energies are coming in. What's the response now? How do I 
bring more energy into the dullness and more calm into the restlessness. This is so much our practice. And the last of the hindrances that commonly experience is doubt. Am I doing it right? Is this working? Am I doing what I meant to be doing? Am I doing what they're doing? They're having a different experience than me. What are we up to now? What, what person and, and how do I do this? We can doubt ourselves. We can doubt the practice. We can doubt the teachers. We can doubt the teacher, you know, everything. When we're in the throes of doubt, nothing seems to be reliable. So there's a kind of doubt that's actually kind of doubt with a capital T where we're really questioning, you know, what's 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 uh, supportive and how, how best to create the retreat container for ourselves. And it's an, more of an inquiry that can be helpful. This kind of doubt is the destabilizing doubt that doesn't allow us to land anywhere. So we want to recognize that. Again, it's just a habit. Many of us have a habit of doubting ourselves. It's very aligned with the self-judgment I was talking about earlier. So we want to recognize it. Reconnect with your original intention in coming on the retreat and taking up this practice. Recognize the doubt as just words in the mind. Again, a habit. Something that if you believe it, it can really shape your experience. If you Look at it clearly. It's like a dandelion you blow away or the early morning fog that just dissipates once the sun hits. So we work with doubt. This practice does, especially if you're new to it, it does require some faith. We're asking you to do something unusual. Repeat these phrases. Direct your attention in this way. But millions of people for thousands of years have trained in this way and found it helpful, as have many of the people here in this retreat, as of all of us as teachers. So you can, if you have doubt, we offer you our faith. We have more than enough to share with you. This practice does work. So for all of us here, we're here because we have a deep desire for connection, for this openness, for this warmth, this sense of presence that we've been talking about. Yet there are ways the heart is contracted. We've all learned this closing down, this pushing away as a way to protect ourselves. Different strategies we've learned. Being willing to open to, with gentleness, explore these places of contraction is the metta practice working, is the, the, the um, journey of this practice. Not letting ourselves be stuck in that or defined by that. It's not who we are. It's just this visiting set of experiences from past uh, memories and conditioned current conditions. We bring an attitude of metta to this experience. We hold them with great tenderness. We explore them, we open to them, and we find this through thread of kindness. It's so powerful to keep coming back to, can I hold this with kindness? And then anything 
is possible. Kindness and acceptance. This is my current moment experience. How did Temple word it? There's so many equanimity phrases. This is how it is right now. It is what it is. I think it was something like that. So the more we can open to that, then these beautiful qualities will naturally start to express themselves. From a place of acceptance, anything is possible. And acceptance is a big part of metta, how we're kind to ourselves. This too, this too, this too. I love these words of Maya Angelou, that great poet. She says, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles. It leaps fences. It penetrates walls to arrive at its destination, full of hope. Full of hope, this energy, this persistence, this possibility that we're all exploring in this week of practice. So I want to finish with some words from a book that's called The First Free Women um, by Maddie Weingast. It's a you, not quite a translation. It's more his being inspired by what's called the Theragata, the, 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 the Enlightenment poems of early Buddhist nuns. There's this beautiful collection in, the, in our um, set of original teachings from these women who practiced with great intensity in very difficult conditions. And Maddie was inspired by that. And some are close translations, but most are more inspirations. But you can hear in them the, the voices of, of freedom. And this is one from a nun called Mita. And Mita is very closely aligned with Metta. It literally means friend. So she talks to us. She says, full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen. I have followed this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. It will lead you home to this heart of friendship. So let's just take a moment to let the words settle. You don't need to adjust your posture, but if you wish to, we just like to make a transition between the offering of the Dhamma whatever happens next. So just getting in touch with your body, sitting or lying, the breath, the gentle breath in the body, almost like a caress, the breath in and the breath out. Just resting in your heart center, bringing in this attitude of kindness, friendliness that mitta
So thank you for your attention, listening to the Dhamma.